1: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I get to sit and chat with Mick Talbot. Mick Talbot of oh, the Style Council, Dexys, Merton Parkers, Gene. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, aside from obviously the incredible work that, you know, everybody knows Mick uh, for doing with Paul Weller um, in, the, in the Style Council, uh, you know, Mick's uh, involvement in the music industry is far and wide. And we touch on a lot of it um, during this podcast. And we also obviously talk about some great records. Um, it was a real, real privilege. I'm a, 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 you know, a bit of a Style Council uh Uber freak fan, and so uh, I tried to keep a lid on it, and I think I think I held it down enough not to come across as a as a real fanboy, and uh, and it's just a really really nice fella. So uh, you're in for a treat uh, on today's episode. Firstly, uh, a few thanks. I'd like to thank um, our previous guest Mark Baxter, um, firstly because um, Bax uh, introduced me to to Mick. Um, so so thanks loads uh, for that, and and obviously th- this has come about through. Um, Facts, working with uh Mick on the uh forthcoming uh Style Council documentary film that's uh, that's coming out very, very, very soon. Um so uh keep one eye peeled uh for that one. And uh and yeah, just some other thanks. Thanks to Seventy Six for producing this podcast. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. And uh, and if this is your first time listening to uh, Off the Beaten Track podcast, then once you finish listening to this great night I have with Mick, then um, why not go and have a look in the archives? You can listen to me speaking to Mark Baxter. You can listen to me speaking to Steve Craddock, uh, Eddie Pillar, uh, the Milk, um, and then also you can hear me chatting to. Um, actors and actresses such as Maxine Peake, Amanda Abington. Oh gosh. Uh, the list goes on and, uh, yeah, there's, there's about 150 episodes now of all your, uh, faves just chatting to every kind of possible creative, you know, actors, DJs, producers, comedians, go and have a, a rummage in the archives and I'm sure you'll find some stuff there that will tickle your fancy. Um, Okay, that's enough uh, waffle from me. Let's get on with today's episode. It gives me great delight to say, please enjoy Off The Beat & Track Podcast with Mick Talbot. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network with me, Stu Whipping. Right, we are recording, sitting opposite me today via the means of Zoom. Mick Talbot, Hello.
3: Hi, how are you doing, Stu? Alright?
2: Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. We've just had a quick chat that uh I'm blessed that you've uh, you've managed to work out Zoom. You're not too good with the tech stuff, no?
3: No, I'm not. My wife had to go out, so mission control was sort of like uh not a bit understaffed at the moment, but uh, thankfully it looks alright to me.
2: Brilliant, brilliant. Um before we get on with uh the, the, the playlist, Mick, um I'm just Interested to know, like, um, how you found the last sort of six months um, of, of, you know, of life in the in the UK and the sort of situation that we're in, both, you know, as a as a as a musician, creative, and, and as a as a human.
3: Well, um,
2: it you know,
3: I try and look on the bright side. It could be worse. It's an unusual thing, but it makes you reflect on what you truly value um, in your personal life and your professional life. Um, you know, it is frustrating, particularly from a professional point of view. And uh, in my game, there's fewer and fewer chances to do what I call proper recording. But on paper, I had about five or six albums I would have been doing in that kind of last seven months. And very fortunate to get involved with a independent label that were quite busy with a lot of different projects and, Some of them were going to be, two of those were going to be recorded abroad at residential studios, which always ups the fun element, really. You know, you create your own little holiday camp for musicians and uh, that, that, you know, that's a tantalising prospect if it comes back. Uh, But people are having to find other ways of doing things. I mean, I'm kind of quite old school and I like the community aspects of making music, so my favourite thing is to have, Four people in the room playing at the same time. Yeah. So it's all very well. Yeah, you can do remote stuff, and even someone as inept as me, I have uh, <laughs> participated in an online festival where, I, you know, I played a couple of things down the phone, and they come out the other end, and that was all right. But, um, no, it just it makes you treasure things that you took for granted in, in your personal life and your professional life. But also, it's an opportunity for me as a musician to get back into things that I quite liked. And like I said, because those things got put on the back burner after about the first month, I thought, I've got demos for about three of these albums, but now I know them too well. I've sort of rinsed them inside out. I've got about four or five great ideas for everything, and it's not going to happen. So leave that, go back to what first enchanted you about music. So it's a kind of... It's a funny time, but it's right for sort of reflection, you know. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on that I'm sort of trying to promote uh, from my little cocoon that um, are quite nostalgic and reflective. And I'm not normally like that, but it seems like a good time to do it, you know. I mean, we weren't to know that all this was going to kick off, but, um, you know, it makes you think, oh, perhaps it's all for a reason. You know. Yeah
2: and it could be it could be worse, you know. Um you know. Let's talk records, Mick. Okay. Track one. What's the song with the greatest ever intro?
3: Uh well I, I thought about a few for this, but I think I've settled with my first thought was uh, it's a man's 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 world by James Brown
2: What a shot. What a great shot. I've never considered that.
3: It's not very long, but it's very dramatic and dynamic, and it kind of sets it up. And, um, and it's nice to hear James Brown singing. He's a great singer. It's not just about taking me to the bridge and sounding like you're being sick in a bucket half the time and screaming. There's all of that and all the funk stuff. But uh, his early stuff, he's a really good singer, and I think he really sings that lovely. And the intro is sort of just, I don't know, it's so dynamic.
2: Yeah. Well, I had a few other things that I thought about, but... Um, Go on, Framing, you can have some honourable mentions, um, mate. Okay. They both concern rain, which we've had a lot
3: lately. I like uh, Walking in the Rain with the one that I love, but I love Unlimited. Yeah. Because that sounds like a film to me. There's like quite a lot of dialogue as, along with all the kind of weather effects and then the orchestration that's really nice. And the other one is In the Rain by The Dramatics, which has got that big sort of like dub guitar thing at the front, which is really kind of, mm. I don't know, I've got a thing about the rain, you know, it's a, it's a lovely
2: metaphor. Have you, I mean, you know, since the, sort of the, the, the early days of, 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 you know, your sort of introduction into into music and, and songwriting through to, you know, as you're saying, like still sort of working on the demos that you've got at the moment and, and the projects that you had in place before this this situation happened. How have you seen the changes in in music and has that affected your songwriting and, and, and the way that you approach songwriting and, and potentially just, you know, intros as well, insofar as the way that people would have listened to music, say, back in the days, the Style Council would have been going out, buying a piece of vinyl or a cassette or whatever, coming home and listening to it and, you know, probably being able to afford one album a week. Whereas nowadays, you've got every single possible record you could ever want on your phone, on your computer, whatever. So there's so much more distraction. So we're seeing with a lot of pop music the stretches of it sort of, there's no fat on the bone anymore. It's like straight in with a chorus and, and, you know, because they're trying to hook you. I just wonder, you know, how you've seen them changes over the years and, and if it's had any sort of effect on, on the sort of music that, how you approach songwriting.
3: Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it necessarily changed the way I approach things, but I mean, as a freelance kind of session guy, I've worked on stuff recently where, um, somebody said to me, Oh, uh, Radio Radio 2, like a thing that they call um, episodic mixes, I think they called it, so that there's something new happening every eight bars or something. And I just sort of thought, do you really sit down and, and write a song and think, oh, I'm going to be bored in, in about sort of 15 seconds, <laughs> so I need to do something else. I mean, if that's a natural progression for what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I know uh, Willie Mitchell, a producer that I love from the old days like did Al Green and Ann Peebles and stuff like that. He had a theory like singles should be like you get to the top of the mountain and then you fade. You know, so, and and also, you know, donkey's years back, I've worked with uh, producers when I was very young and naive and they've said, put the chorus up the front. They've edited it and And sometimes they've got a point, you know. It's like get them with the hook straight away. I think like what you're talking about as well, I can see it in um, films and promo things as well. People's uh, patience. They want uh, instant sort of gratification. They can't have something that builds. I mean, it's it's like taking someone to a theatre or something who's sort of never been there and you just think, Hang on. The way this works, it's got three acts, right? And there's a, and they're just like, well, how boring. Mm. It's like, oh, you know, a film wouldn't be like that. But it's like it's a kind of thing. It's got a it's got a means. And I still like the format of an LP, especially if it's been made as a collection of songs that kind of work together. But I, I think we're kind of losing a bit of that. At the same time, I think the DJ thing. I I can remember working with a lot of DJs and looking through their records and seeing an album that I know and just going, do you know, um, oh, do you know that track? And they go, there's only one track on it because that's the one I play when I'm out. Do you know what I mean? And that's all they knew. They'd never played the album. I was astonished with that. Yeah. I just thought, you've never played the album. When, no, the one with the break on it is the one that sort of like gets the floor and you think, yeah, well, that's fair enough, yeah. But, I mean, it's a really good album. yeah. And actually, if you like what you think is the strongest track, you'll probably be engaged with some of the other stuff as well because it's the same band. But it's it depends where you're coming in on it. So I think there's always been a bit of that, but it's like, you're right, people's patience levels are just sort of, I don't know, they're
2: and, just... Well, what you said there about sort of DJ culture of, you know, they only want the, the track that's got the break for the dance floor. And but I guess nowadays, it, and it, and it's, you know, I speak to lots of, you know, musicians on here and I always sort of say like, you know, when, you know, when you're making albums now, do you still make them albums as a body of work, as a piece of art, you know, or are you aware that people, you know, a lot of people's buying and listening habits now are, I'll go on iTunes and I'll just buy that one I like off the album. You know? Yeah,
3: yeah, I think I, I think you're aware people are like that, but if you're sort of old and ancient enough, then you still work in the traditions that sort of suit you, and you think, well, people can cherry-pick, and that's fine. You know, it it, it doesn't concern me. I mean, I, there are sort of like little kind of holes in this set network, though, because I, I, I was looking for a B-side, and I couldn't find the 7-inch, and I thought I had it in a box in my loft, and I couldn't find it, and I wanted to hear this B-side... And I didn't do a lot of fishing around, but I went on Spotify and they didn't have it. And it's just like, oh, the B-side doesn't exist. You've got the A-side, but the B-side doesn't exist. Sometimes there's some real treasures on B-sides and quite often they don't make it onto the album either. So they're like a kind of little secret world. And there's lots of treasures to be found there. And I just thought, oh, that's a shame, isn't it? They've got like all the all these fellas A-sides, but they haven't got this B-side and I just thought.
2: But that, that situation, Mick, to me, I love that because that means that if you want that, you've got to go and find it. You've got to go and either root through your loft till you do find it or go online and find a record store or whatever or go down your yeah. local record shop and buy it. And for me, that's the thing. And I know we're sounding like a pair of granddads here, but it is the thing I like is the fact that the payoff, you get the payoff, but the journey's part of it as well you know going oh, to that yeah, record yeah. shop and getting it and and, and yeah. then you really because you can't just get it like that you've got to go and find it and then I think it does it is that little gem moment of like well look I yeah. had to go and get that and and it's tangible it's in my hand now
3: well I've got a lot to thank B-Sides for because uh, when I worked first of all with Paul Weller we used to talk about records and he'd just go do you know the B-Side and we used to have this sort of almost like B-Side competition but sort of like Quite big tracks, but a lot of people don't bother with the B-sides. And you just, you talked about them. And and funny enough, like the first band I was in, um, uh, Paul got given a copy of the single and he didn't like it, but he listened to the B-side. And on the B-side, I'm playing a piano solo. And that's what first engaged him with what I did. He went, I didn't like that single, but I listened to the B-side. And I want you to do something like that with me.
2: Wonderful.
3: those twenty seconds, a little, you know, throwaway electric piano break. It just sort of. Uh, I've got a lot to thank that for, you know.
2: Yeah, and Eddie had gone on Spotify. Probably wouldn't have found it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that existed. <laughs> We're going back a long way.
3: Track- We're going back to when I went to school with Jesus. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Track two, Mick. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Um. Well, I.
3: I first thought about things that bring you sort of sorrow, but that's not the only emotion in the world. But um, I, I think it's like elation and exuberance. When I was really young, I think it's probably a bit of a cliche from people of my age group. But um, the Beatles, "She Loves You," yeah, just the first time we heard that, and I, 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 you know, I'm old enough to remember the fateful Royal Command performance where Lennon did his thing about if you're in the cheap seats, clap, and if you're in the posh seats, rattle your jewellery and stuff like that. I mean, I can't remember him saying that at the time. I can just remember one of the tunes was She Loves You, and that had the chorus at the front, and yeah, 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 it just got you straight away. Mm -hmm. There's something about repeating words three times, you know. Amy Winehouse has done it. No, no, no. Um, You know, it's just something... You get it in that reggae thing. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something about that. Just to a kid of four or five, it just grabs you. And there was an excitement about the Beatles then. You know, seeing them in real time coming out at the time, it's just, as young as I was, I just, I understood that it was something special, you know. Mm. And I I like the fact that my mum and dad liked them as well, you know.
2: The rawness when you listen back to them early Beatles releases now it's just incredible isn't it the energy as well in in, I mean she loves you it's it's,
3: it's easy to overlook because you know we've all probably suffered by overexposure and you know what you think of it but when you do hear it I don't know it's just that's just a sort of honest answer that's what's good about these questions they're not necessarily like seven records that I put on all the time yeah but they are steered by your life you know and what sort of
2: you know,
3: hits you at the moment.
2: You mentioned that, you, you, you know, your parents liked the, the Beatles as well. So, you know, in, in the sort of formative years, Mick, was there sort of records on at home and stuff?
3: Yeah, well, I would say my mum liked them more. My mum my was into what was happening there. I think her favourite group at the time were the Searchers, another band from Liverpool, who Paul McCartney always used to say were good. And I think they were quite a seminal band in the kind of whole uh, American scene, they influenced the birds and people like that. So in turn, that would have led on people like Johnny Marr and lots of things, you know, they were real uh, 12-string merchants. So my mum liked a lot of that sort of stuff, but she also liked uh, a lot of early Motown. She was listening to a lot of the pirate radio stations that were around. And um, so we used to hear a lot of that. But my dad was more into modern jazz. But he could, could I understand the appeal of certain things. Um, but I got to understand my dad's music a bit more when I was a bit older and uh, made a connection between certain modern jazz and certain soul things, you know, the roots being common, blues of gospel and stuff, you know. So, yeah, they were both into music.
2: What about playing? How did that come about? Was there a piano at home?
3: Yeah, my, my nan lived with us. And uh, she played the piano by ear and she couldn't explain how she did it. And I, it, so that lent it a certain sort of magic to me when I was really, really little. And I used to like sit in there. I used to sit by the stool like a little dog by her feet, listening to her and just almost falling asleep. Cause it's just, I just thought, how do you do it? And I tried to get her to show me and she tried to show me things. She went, I, I don't know. It's sort of, it, it, I don't know how I do it, but I, I can show you some things, you know, so that sort of drew me in she actually got me lessons which I just hated but it kind of took me a bit further and I I stuck with them for a little while uh, um, because she could see that I was keen but um, and my dad could play the piano a bit but he was a bit better on guitar really you know but um, so yeah through that side of the family really and my name you
2: know and where was this Mick where was home then
3: uh, well, I lived in, um, Tooting, which is, uh, in the borough of Wormsworth in South London till I was about six or seven. And then we moved to, uh, South Wimbledon, Merton that area. So only three stops down the, uh, Northern line, just where sort of Southwest London blurs into the Surrey. Yeah. Good place to grow up. Yeah, it was all right. It was nice. You know, I mean, you know, fortunate, uh, as a, in my late teens, there were quite a lot of, um. Pubs along that northern line stretch so between the Malden and the Elephant. There were a lot of pubs, and I used to go around them with my mate and just say, "We're in a band. Can we play? What's your worst night? Let us play." <laughs> you know, there were there were quite a lot. You know, you could do that regularly. Ping pong up and down that first bit of the northern line, and a lot of pubs where you could play. So it was good.
0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: All right, well, let's go back uh, for a moment and we'll pick back up on that. But for track three, Mick, I want to know the song that reminds you of your time at school.
3: Um, the track that reminds me of my time at school, uh, the one I've gone for is band of gold by Frida Payne. Cause I just went to a new school when that came out and that was number one for over a month. I think I remember hearing it late summer. And then by the time we went to school in September, I'm sure it was number one till October. It was just up there for ages, you know, and, um, and it just, it really had something, you know, and and it was, it was a big favourite with the fraternity that we might call skinhead or suedehead by then, and I'm talking about the first wave, yeah. because it came out in 1970. Um, so that was just such a big tune, you know. I mean, retrospectively, I found out that you know Holland Dozier Holland were behind it, and they just left Motown and set up their own thing. They were still under some strangulated sort of. Uh, thing with uh, Barry Gordy so they even wrote that song with someone else under an assumed name Um, but
2: I never knew that I never knew that
3: yeah I think I think there's a fella called uh, Ron Dunbar that wrote with them but they collectively the three of them went under the name of S. Wayne or something I think it's Dunbar Wayne the songwriting credit but those three were really Wayne but um, I don't know if they had
2: some contract that was still Ticking yeah,
3: over yeah. that gave them an exclusive thing
2: with Motown or something. Yeah. How did you find school? Did you enjoy it?
3: Uh it was yeah, it was all right. I liked I mean I was more drawn to sort of art and music and stuff. Um and uh I think I enjoyed it more the younger I was. When I when I got to my high school, I found the attitudes they're a bit weird. The high school I went to became just a normal secondary modern, uh, but it had been a grammar school. And the year I was in, we were the first people that hadn't earned our place there. We were, and so there was a kind of attitude from the teachers that we, oh, we've let the scum in, you know. It's yeah. like, and they didn't like the fact that they'd been downgraded and they were no longer what they were. And so they thought they were, don't get me wrong, I didn't go to Eton, but, but they thought they were something that they weren't, you yeah. know, and thought they wanted to be something that they used to be. And we were the first full year intake that wasn't uh, grammar school people. And
2: uh that's harsh, isn't it? That there was,
3: <laughs> you felt it as well, you know. And uh, yeah, so I, I became a bit disenchanted with that. I really loved football and that was a rugby school. And they tried to convert you when you went there. So even if you thought, okay, I'm waiting for art and I'm waiting for games. Once it was games, oh, you're one of them, like, a dirty word, soccer players. We're <laughs> going to convert you into a rugger player. And it's like, oh, God, you
2: know. I mean, you mentioned, like, arts and music were, were you know, were, were to your interests at school. Um, was, that, was that encouraged?
3: Um, it, yeah, I suppose it was to a certain extent. Yeah, you know, we had a good art teacher, and the music thing—I I think they, I mean, they tried to engage with it, but it seemed to me that anything that was like modern or, or of this century never made it onto the school concert, or or had a struggle to do that. Hmm. But there were some, you know, there was a couple of music teachers, and they used to let they had a drum kit in this annex and they used to let us go there. If we could actually play, they'd sort of they pick about half a dozen of you and go, yeah, you can play. So you can go in there at break time and uh, do something. And then you got a little bit of a scene going yourself. So that helped school bands flourish a little, but they weren't very encouraging of you playing in a concert, but for some reason they were people in the sixth form. So, if you would, it was more or less like they're saying, if you stay on here like until you're 18, we might let you play that bloody beat music that you play, you know. And it's just like, right, so I've got to stay on for my A levels. I can't wait to get out of here. I've got to stay on just to get up in front of you, lot, you know. And
2: that seemed to be the deal. Track four. First song you bought from a record shop, Mick?
3: Um, it wasn't a new record. I was going for a record... <laughs> Uh, cheap singles that I could afford but I remember uh, so it wasn't current but it was Baby Love by the Supremes and I remember my mum loving that record and I remember it from the radio and I thought I recognised that title and that's the first record I bought and um, it was on the stateside label with the S with a dollar sign and uh, you know that's what I don't know pre sixty five Motown stuff in the UK come out on stateside. It didn't have its own label in the UK then. I've since found out. I didn't know then. Yeah. I just thought this is baby love. I remember this.
2: That's a great record for your first record.
3: Well, it, it, it's all right, but I just think that's more about my mum's influence, really. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You know, and the fact that it was in the cheap box. <laughs> and <laughs> can you remember where you bought it? It, was, it wasn't even a record store, it was a Cubs jumble sale. And my mate just went, they'd got, they'd got loads of records. And I just went, yeah, but the person running them knows what they've got. But they just had this, they were charging too much for albums, I thought. But like, they just had these old singles, a couple of boxes of singles, and there were a few
2: treasures there, I thought. You know. So as, as you started to grow up, Mick, how important did record shops become for you? Well, very
3: important, but I always liked singles. I used to try and chat up mates that I thought <laughs> had richer mums and dads to buy albums that I like and then borrow them <laughs> off Brilliant. them. Brilliant. Which is, you know, it's horrible. But uh, uh, I, I've just used, I would prefer to have, you know, 15 singles and two albums and, and by 15 different artists. So I, I wanted to try and take in a lot of different stuff. I mean, my favourite format. And it probably still is—is is the EP really? Hmm. I think you get you get you know a bit more out of one band, but it's not as boring as an album if you're not really getting into all of it. You know, I think yeah. four tracks on a seven is just just felt like a nice thing to me.
2: Definitely. So I
3: treasured a few EPs. You know, that I hounded down
2: the, the fact that you said that you know you'd rather have sort of fifteen singles than two albums. Um. Are you, are you, like, if you if you hear a record and you like it, are, are you, I'm only asking this because I am, like, do you play it over and over and over again?
3: There are some records like that. And when I was younger, there were records like that. Like, you know, I'm talking about, uh, talking about me chatting people up to get albums. My mate, Paul Borek, I talked him into buying uh, Dr. Philbert's first album. And, He was really into early Stones and I went, they're doing a lot of like rhythm and blues and it's just like, it's sort of almost like mid-60s but it was like something else as well. And um, I borrowed that album off him for about nine months and (laughs) played it every day. Uh, I think that's quite an influential album actually. Um, uh, I think it influenced so many people with its attitude and its spirit and the image that they come out with.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking to an Essex boy here, so we're fiercely proud of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's the Canby
3: Island thing, isn't it? <laughs>
2: um, as you started to sort of play more and stuff, and, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get these records, you know, like Feel Goods or, you know, or, or whatever it was, would you start to sort of deconstruct them in your head and work out how them records were put together, like the parts of it and that?
3: Sometimes I would, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that... Um, my dad said to me when I was listening to it, I had a compilation of um, rock and roll stuff and rhythm and blues stuff. And he, he heard me listen to it and just went, of course, you know, all those songs have only got three chords. And I went, hang on, sorry? He went, yeah, they've only got three chords. And once you've worked out what key they're in, that's what makes them so easy to play along with. And I thought that was like the keys to the universe yeah. to me. I just thought, this is i'm on this you know yeah but it's quite nice because my dad saw something in me then and he just went i've got a mate that dj's at a pub he went i'm gonna i'm gonna i think i'm getting a line into what you're into you like rhythm and blues and soul and he came home with like uh two orange boxes i so used to have them brick big orange boxes that were just the right size for seven yeah. inch singles and he came home with two of them from work and he went i borrowed them from johnny orton and uh I've got to go back. But you know my mate Eddie, he's vlogged me a cassette, and I don't know where that come from. But um, So you've got to get them all taped over the weekend if you want, if you like them. And I, I did do a tape of all these singles, and I listened to them all, and I played along to them on the piano. And, and I kind of – there was a lot of New Orleans soul and um, a lot of Chicago blues, uh, and it was great. You know, and – and, uh, you know, this bloke who I never met, met, who my dad worked with in a warehouse, he was one of my greatest influences, really, you know.
2: Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll tell you what I love as well about that kind of doing them sort of mixtapes of, 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 of different tracks on cassettes. And it's like, and how important them cassettes become. So much so that, like, I'll still, I mean, I've not listened to a cassette for probably 20 years, Mick, but I know sometimes a record comes on the radio and as it finishes, I think, oh, I know what's next. And it's like Yeah, yeah,
3: you remember the order of the thing and that you've got made that, for you or something yeah, mate.
2: Yeah, that weird yeah, muscle yeah. memory of like just playing them because obviously not having everything at my disposal, you cherish what you had. So it would like ingrain itself. And I was thinking, Oh I know what's next. Oh of course it's not next, it's the radio. Like but yeah, yeah. that is the, the you know, the power of, of them sort of things can have. Yeah. Um all right, we're gonna move forward now to uh to uh, I, I, I guess your, your, your late teens. And uh, for track five, um, the song that soundtracked your years clubbing?
3: Um, Yeah, there's a few I thought of here, but I've I've gone with um, Bus Stop by the Fatback Man. Nice. Um, Because that that sort of came out in the middle of the 70s, and I was about 16, and I was just about able to get in proper clubs then. There was no ID then, you know. We're talking about such ancient times that you, to get into a mecca place, you had to have a tie on, believe it or not. Never mind no acts and trainers. You had to have a tie on. And the thing is, everyone took them off as soon as they got in. And at one, on one occasion, my mate forgot his tie, and he, and he just went around the corner and uh, got a knot out of his sock, took his sock off and put it round his neck. And he got in. So it was a bit of a farcical thing. But... Um, so that sort of that track is from that era when i first thought right i can get in here i'm just tall enough if i wear the right jacket i'll, <laughs> I'll look all right but before that i was going to a lot of discos that were just sort of like you know didn't have a license you just get yeah, coke or fanta and they playing good records so there's earlier sort of things that are in my mind that i consider clubbing but they're not proper clubs really so
2: what would the change though
3: so the tunes from that from earlier on would be like sort of Finders Keepers, Chairman of the Board, things like that. Yeah. Uh, Rock Your Baby, George McRae. Uh, I don't know, Sex Machine. That just seemed to transcend all the eras. I, I know it came out in '71, but it just like that—that that was one of them records that never went away. Mm. You know, and and also earlier, sort of like sort of youth club discos, a lot of the sort of uh, reggae stuff, Liquidator and uh, Long Shot, yeah. kick the Bucket, and all that sort of that's coming out the tail end of all the sort of suede
2: head thing. You know. And then sort of moving forward, you know, and, and we'll touch on the style council here, like to, you know, because, it was a huge success, and like, and and I'm I'm just interested, you know, was there sort of clubbing in and around then? You know, I'm sure it was probably very different to the clubbing that, that you was doing. When oh you were yeah, 16. yeah. Well, cl-
3: you, at the moment you say clubbing with the style council, so I yeah. think of like Hold me tighter in the rain by Billy Griffin. That yeah. was like come out just when we started, and we used to just work in the studio till quite late, and then go out to places, and yeah. that was one of them places, them things, and trying to think of other tunes that were around me. I don't know, Love Town and things like that. And uh, Yeah, there's a lot
2: of good tunes out early 80s. You know. um, how, how did you, um, cause obviously Paul had success, you know, massive success with the jam and being obviously mm-hmm. the front person, you know, was a very, very recognizable face. And then the style council happened and, and, and obviously you become a very, very recognizable face. How did you find fame? You know, how was it for you? And, and, you know, being able to walk down the street and, and, you know, people recognise you. You know, how is that? And how did you deal with it?
3: Uh, it, It's all right. It's it's okay. You know,
2: everyone thinks you're richer than you are. You know, (laughs) that's the downside of it. I'm would sell it. do you know what I was going to say that that's the thing it's like the amount of people that because I'm always fascinated to ask artists like what it was like going on top of the pops because it being such an institution like growing up watching it, it is the only place you could see your pop stars and and I think it was when I spoke to um, Bedders from Madness and yeah. uh, and I said how was that first like you know uh, top of the pops performance I think they were doing the Prince or something he went yeah, I had to borrow the bus fare home afterwards, and it was like you just presume then when you see people on top of the pops. That like, oh, well, they're definitely like going home on a jet. They're millionaires, of course. So they they're on top of the pops. Like,
3: yeah, you, you. I, I mean, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it, it's a bit of a jolt. I mean, of course, it's a thrill to get there because you, you've thought about it for a long time. You know, but um, it's, it's kind of you're when you get there, you think, oh, this is really small, and they're just like really brutal with the audience like like knocking them about like cattle and just yeah. like get here and get there and it's just and and then it just becomes a bit oh all right well you, you're pleased to be there and you you're you know you think you've achieved something I mean uh, the first time I went on there was with a band called the Merton Parkers in 1979 oh you
2: went on there with the Parkers
3: yeah and I was a pretty cautious person I actually I stayed I, I worked I had a job in the city I worked for a shipping agent's and um, we were on Top of the Pops on the Thursday, and I left work on the Friday. And that's a building with, like, seven floors, and there was a bar on the sixth floor, and it used to open only on Friday lunchtimes. That Friday lunchtime, I suddenly had 300 new friends.
2: You know?
3: <laughs> and I thought, I'm leaving in three hours, and that's the end of it, sort of thing. It's really odd. Oh, wow.
2: Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um. For track six, your favourite song from an artist from your home county, please, Mick.
3: Um, Right. uh, Well, um, I I was thinking about this. I used to work in a supermarket in Malden, which is the end of the Northern Line, and opposite us was Malden Tube, and then there was a little shoe repairers, and there was a fella in there, and I was told he was a singer. And I thought about that, and many years later, um, he made a record, and his name was Junior. Um, and so it's what used to say. When I got to meet him a few years after, I was only a saddie boy at that uh, supermarket, I said, were well, you the fella in the uh, heel bar by Morden Tube? And he went, yeah, that was me. I went, I, loads of people told me that and I wasn't sure if it was true. And he just went, yeah. And I said, well, where are you from? And he just went, uh, I think he was from Wandsworth originally. But uh, he said, "I, I live in Mitcham," and I went, "Whereabouts?" So he went near Pollard's Hill, and I went, "Well, that's, my names' flats just there." So it's really funny, and I, it, you know, I, you know, I, I can't say I watched him a bulb or knew him, but it's just like something in close proximity. And you thought, "Well, that's great," you know, and you know, he went on soul train and met James Brown, and there's a theory that Michael Jackson might have adapted one of his dance moves because he liked his video and this, that, and the other, and. You just think, that's oh, a little fellow that used to work in the eel Bar at Walden Tube, and that's really? great. You know, I love things like that.
2: Did you end up working with Junior at any point?
3: Yes, he did do. Um, he, he worked on a thing called the, we had a thing called the Council Collective. Yeah. Where um, he sang and uh, Jimmy Ruffin sung, and it was a um, minor's benefit record. That's right. It was called Soul Deep. Yeah, so that's when I got to see him, and he, and then we did a tour with him. He was on a Red Wedge tour, so yeah. we got to see him quite a lot, so he had a chance to talk about a lot of different things, you know. Wonderful. But it was nice to see someone from that close and just sort of think, no, I mean, when I was a Saturday boy at K, as I was 15, and he might have been like 16 just working across the road, and it's just lovely to think you can go that far.
2: You know? Absolutely absolutely um well you can be dj-namic for last track uh turn someone on to something that they may not hear so a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear
3: um yeah i'd i'd like them to hear a record called just don't pay by debbie taylor she's a soul singer and I, i had the opportunity to work with her about seven years ago um me and a few mates that used to do a lot of soul pickup things with different people. we have done Martha Reeves and Candy Statton and people like that. But what's really lovely, we used to go up to a place near Leeds, uh, I think it's Castleford, for a DJ called Dave Box, who's sadly no longer with us. Uh, but he was a real educator about um, not just, I guess, a little bit northern soul, but really just classic soul. You know, I don't think he liked to label it northern soul. But um, he brought over a lot of acts just for one night only at the, I think it was called the Wilton Ballroom, Soulful Sessions at the Wilton. And Debbie Taylor was one of them. And I had, I did know one of her tunes. Uh, I think it was called, I Don't Want to Leave You. Um, but Just Don't Pay was my favourite that we played with her. And we got to play with Anne Sexton and Richard Kate and then a few other people that are, some people know them, some people know him for one song, but it's great when you engage with all their stuff and we met Debbie Taylor and she went, well, you know, five or six years before I did Just Don't Pay, um, I'd never recorded before and the first person I recorded for was Isaac Hayes. He wrote a tune for me in like the late 60s. And I'm like, Wow.
2: That too. You know, and it's just these yeah.
3: people. I've got so many stories, <laughs> And you think if the kind of cards have been stacked a different way, you might you might have been as big as Gladys Knight or something, you know, because you certainly got the, you certainly got the voice. So that was a treat and and it's a sort of tribute to Dave Box in a way, because as much as you might think you know about certain things, there's always someone that knows a bit more about a certain specific area of it. And yeah. he wasn't a sort of elitist. He he was into sharing it and spreading it, you know.
2: Yeah. Which was great. Wonderful. Well, we put together a Spotify playlist and uh, we put all your choices on there and, and so many other records that we've, honourable mentions and records that we spoke about. And, uh, and so that accompany this, this podcast. Mick, as we, fingers crossed, find ourselves in some way coming out of the situation that we're in. Um, and, and I mean fingers crossed because it's, it doesn't look too positive right, right now. Um, but um, what are you most looking forward to personally coming out of this and, and what's coming up professionally?
3: Um, Well, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to having no restrictions with seeing your family and just socialising and seeing your mates and things that you took for granted. Um, I'm pleased that a few things... I've I've been doing a few sessions in studios. Uh, One of my mates that runs quite a small studio has redesigned his thing so that everyone can be in like a little igloo and you've still got sort of eyesight with each other through... Camera technology, and so you've got it audio and visual. Um, that's great. Done a few things at his place, my mate Ernie, and uh, I've done stuff at bigger studios as well. I've been back to uh, like Rack Studios um, to do a few things. So it, it seems to me that the the world of recording will return sooner. And I'm talking about old school traditional recording. I know I could do it all there with like a laptop or whatever, but I'm kind of trying to stick with what I know best and that's sort of there seems like there's a sort of route to that a lot faster than yeah playing gigs. I mean, I'm going to a gig tonight, um, by the Stone Foundation at the Jazz Cafe in Camden. That's a sort of socially restricted thing. And I think the Jazz Cafe can take about three fifty. And I think they're letting in about one thirty. So and I think everyone's got a bit of tables regardless of whether you're downstairs or upstairs. But It'd be interesting to see how that works, you know. Um, And uh, I guess if you can do nothing else, if people can get away with having a club a third full and stick to certain sort of rules, then maybe that's a stepping stone to the real deal, you know. Got to keep these venues open, Mick. It's important, you know. yeah, it's tough, you know. I mean, all this uh, grant and what have you... I get the feeling that's sort of going to go to the Royal Opera Company and um, a lot of the elites that always get the sort of big handouts, you know, people that are trying to run little places off their own initiative. Suddenly, they just seem very devalued, you know. But um, without them sort of places, they're they're few and far between where live bands can really cut their chops now. And certainly that scene I was talking about on the Northern line, with all the pubs, so many of them have gone. Yeah. You you're lucky if any of them are still remaining as pubs, let alone places where you have live music. Definitely, Um, definitely. So we should uh, learn to cherish these things. And if they're all sort of decimated, I don't know if we're going to come out the other end of this, like in sort of 18 months where there'll have to be a new boom and people will have to restart things. Yeah. You know. And documentary coming out soon? Yes. There's a documentary coming out at the end of the month. Um, that's really good. I'm I'm really pleased. I mean, we've not been able to do a proper premiere for it, but, uh, you know, this is the reason I'm sort of uh, trying to spout to a lot of people because um, I I really believe in it. Uh, Mark Baxter and um, Lee have made a really good film. Uh, Those things are always fraught with compromise, but I think they've really reflected what the band were about and done a great job, you know, and um, I think it's could be quite enlightening to people that are sort of not of a certain vintage. And even if you were around then, it might give you a different aspect on what went down, you know? Um, So that's good. Yeah, that's nice. And there's a box set coming out at the same time. So that's like I say, it's, we weren't to know that, but um, it is a bit of a year for reflection, I suppose. And it's uh, interesting to revisit all those things and. um,
2: Absolutely.
3: See what they might mean to fresh ears.
2: Mick, it's it's been lovely um, having a little nostalgia trip with you today. Um, Wish you all the best, mate. Good luck with the documentary. All right. And thanks so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it.
3: All right. It all turns out all right in the edit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, mate. There you go hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got as much fun listening to that as I did chatting to Mick. What an absolute top fella! Um, really good chat, great tasty music, obviously, and uh, and got to talk about some wonderful records. So we'll stick them all on the Spotify playlist, so you can go over there and and have a listen. And as mentioned at the beginning, if you enjoyed this chat, then go and have a look in the archives. Hear me chatting to uh, Dennis of Nine Below Zero, um, the Milk. Oh gosh. Uh, who else have I chatted to recently? Recently, let me think Chuck D from public enemy, um, Mel C from the spice girls, um, Maxine peak. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the list is far and wide and yeah, just some lovely kind of little snapshots into people's creative journeys and, and the records that have soundtracked it. And, uh, yeah. And I hope you enjoyed this one. And, uh, because it was a, a, a real privilege to chat to Mick. Um, you can find out about, um, everything to do with this podcast and where you can listen to other episodes, where you can support the Patreon, where you can get merch and everything at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com I'm out of here. I'll see you next time. Thanks ever so much for listening. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? they're our official sponsor yeah that's right go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale you're gonna love it so they've decided they want to be our sponsor which is amazing and what i have to do is i have to tell you about why they're amazing so here's a little bit of blurb so they've only been going a year and they're based in south end on sea just up the road from me they put the company together based on a do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast.